Hi, and welcome to Movie Fail Podcast. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And we're going to be talking about Two Swords, the first episode of Season 4 of Game of Thrones. Um, this is going to be part of a weekly podcast. So, um, yeah, why don't we get started? Josh, what's your... Uh, why don't we start with your general uh, take on uh, the first episode of, of uh, season four? Well, um, I think at this point we know what to expect from a Game of Thrones season premiere, and this was no different. No, you know, nothing shocking. Right. It was a lot of place setting. It was a lot of kind of checking in with characters, finding out what they're up to, getting them in place for their storylines this season, uh, setting up relationships and conflicts. Uh, yeah, it's funny, for an episode, not a lot happened happened in this episode, but there's still a lot going on and a lot, a lot to dig into. What did you think? Um, you know, I thought, I, I, I agree pretty much uh, with what you just said, although I'll say, um, as I, I know I complained a lot in, in the last podcast about um, sort of the the rapid spike in excitement that happens about halfway through each season of Game of Thrones. Uh, that was, I guess, more gradual in the first season and got really bad in season two and three. Um, season three was a bit better. Season two was most egregious. Um, but uh, I, I felt that here, this this first episode was a lot more akin to the first episode of season one of Game of Thrones, which was very exciting, um, where there's a lot of introductions and things like that, but it sets up plots that you're interested in. Uh, oftentimes in season premieres of Game of Thrones, um, particularly with uh, seasons two and three, there were threads that I didn't care about. You know, I just wanted to get back to Danny, or I just wanted to get back to you know uh, to Arya. Um, but in this case, I don't think there was a single thread that I was bored by or uninterested in, um, which is for me a first since the first season. I haven't I haven't felt that invested so wholly in all of these in all of these characters. So I, I enjoyed this premiere quite a bit. Yeah, um, so why don't we dig right in? We're going to start chronologically, so we'll start at the beginning. We have this cold open of Tywin melting down ice, which was Ned's sword, uh, which we haven't seen in a little while. Right. Um, so they had to put it in the previously on, so we remember, so we know <laughs> the importance of what's actually happening, since there's no uh, dialogue. So I think it's interesting that this hour is so Lannister-focused, and we open with the Lannisters in a place where, um, post-Red Wedding, and they seem to have won. There's a lot of, uh, they, they say in this episode a lot that the war is over. Stannis is out there. We don't see Stannis in this episode. But for all intents and purposes, they are secure in, in the seat of power. And this opening is kind of uh, a show of that power from Tywin, even though there are no Starks there, obviously. Right, but but it, if you take Ice as a representation of Ned, I mean, all of the promotional art for, especially season one, uh, had Ice in it. Um, with, you know, Ned holding it in that very iconic pose. And uh, the first episode, we see him using ice to behead the uh, the deserter from the wall. So um, so in a way, it's a, it's, it is very symbolic um, of, a, of, of the lion and the, the wolf sort of uh, iconography. Yeah, and it's and of the fire and ice uh, motifs that are we talked about, right, talk right. about in the last podcast. It's literally ice and fire together in this opening scene uh doesn't get much more blatant than that so it's uh, it's funny that um we there hasn't been a lot of combination of those two elements uh, or as in their as they are metaphors in their service as metaphors so this is the first time we've really seen that kind of mixture yeah um it's kind of a weirdly bold thing because 
fire and ice have been kept so separate in the past. Like there's the wall and that's all the ice. And then there's uh, Daenerys and the dragons. And that's usually where we get the fire. And so, so it's, it's interesting to see this season open with such a, you know, and maybe I think it feels like a statement on the part of the show that saw that this is a different, like this is a different show that you're watching. This is, there are some major changes um, this season and you can almost feel it in this episode that there is something you know maybe if not something brewing that this is a different world than the one that we last saw absolutely and and i think there's you know it's a good way to sort of in a subtle sort of roundabout way remind us that there are dragons which we of course see very shortly after this uh and that there are these white walkers and there's this again, this dichotomy of ice and fire um, that are probably eventually going to meet and all the people who are fighting, uh, as we talked about last um, uh, on the last podcast, uh, people fighting who are going to be caught in the middle, um, who are having their petty squabbles, but ultimately dragons and white walkers are kind of more important. Um, so, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting moment to see, uh, to see ice, uh, this sword, this famous sword, uh, melted down and become this glowing red-hot... Uh, piece of metal, um, and then and then given to uh, to Jamie in the next scene, right? Uh, yeah, that's the very next scene is um, Jamie being offered Lordship of Casterly Rock and refusing it. And it's funny that the last se- last season we had a similar scene like this with Tyrion, which was Tyrion asking for Casterly Rock and Tywin refusing it. Right. And Tywin is a guy who's so pragmatic, um, and everything to him is about is a means to an end. There's really no emotional. There's very little emotion that goes into his decisions. So it's funny that um, he offers uh, Jamie Lordship of Castle Rock because Jamie not having a sword hand is much less useful to him right. uh, than he was, at least in the capacity that he had been useful as a member of the King's Guard. Um, so it's funny that this is an example of emotion factoring in to Tywin's decisions because he has no more reason to offer Jamie Caster the Rock than he did to just give Tyrion Caster the Rock because they are both equally, you know, useful to him in the positions they currently occupy. So it's, it seems to be purely out of pity for his son. Or maybe spite um, for Tyrion. And, sp- and spite for Tyrion, exactly. And it's, they're very funny as parallel scenes. And I think this scene is another example of the Lannisters, even though they seem to have so much power right now. Um, they all are at odds with each other. Right. You know, and I, th- I think that's really interesting um, because, uh, like you mentioned earlier, there, there's a lot, of this, uh, a lot of talk about how they've won the war, the Starks are finished, uh, ice is being mel- melted down just to really, you know, hammer home the point. Um, but, the, but the Lannisters are all at each other's throats, you know, so they're all um, deeply uh, flawed in many different ways. Um, Tywin may be pragmatic to the point of being... Uh, just sadistic and, and not particularly helpful. I don't, I don't know, um, but but certainly Cersei is is sort of a broken creature in many ways. Uh, Tyrion um, has very little power and is being thrown around uh, for diplomatic reasons, um, but that doesn't seem to have uh, much value according to Tywin and the powers that be outside of his name. Uh, and then we have Jaime, who of course is missing a hand, and so his quote unquote worth and his uh, swordsmanship is completely diminished. So while they're in charge and they've won, uh, certainly they um, they stand to lose a lot uh, and may actually lose a lot just simply because they are this broken family entity that doesn't seem to have uh, their, their stuff together at all. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely going to be a source of conflict heading into this season, which hasn't been before. Now that the war is pretty much over, um, I feel like this season is going to be much more about the, our characters clashing together, personally, right. you know? I think so, so too. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, our very next scene, we, inter- we meet Oberyn Martell, who is, is very much interested in clashing with the Lannisters. What did you think of Oberyn? I thought he was great. Um, I thought he was a really interesting character. Uh, he sort of got his own um, his own sort of uh, different take on uh, on the kingdom. Um, he doesn't seem to be afraid of the Lannisters at all. And to me, that's that's sort of an interesting, different character who's not <clears throat> he's not he's not beholden to the ways of politics and, and the ways of uh, he, he 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 has a very clear mission of. Um, to stick it to the Lannisters, whether that means to murder all of them or to simply undermine them, it's not entirely clear. But he's certainly making uh, uh, so, something of an impression on the uh, on the capital just by being there. Uh, and then, um, you know, I thought it was fascinating to see the way they introduced him. Um, you know, with a scene of uh, in the in the brothel where he basically is. Uh, uh, about to, he's like in the, in the midst of of setting up this group sex or would be group sex scene, uh, and then upon hearing the reigns of Castamere uh, song, he gets up, leaves, uh, and goes and and stabs the hand of um, one of the uh, one of the Lannister. I don't know if they're actually Lannisters or if they're Lannister men who um, uh, who were singing it. And so I just, for me, I really like that scene because it juxtaposed sex and power in a way that we don't often see in the show. Uh, and it gave a purpose for sex, which is something we haven't seen uh, in the past. It's usually just, you know, it's one of the big criticisms of the show that um, they're they're just excuses for people to be undressed, mostly women. Uh, and in this case, uh, we didn't see that, I don't think. Um, it, it, it started off that way. I was a little worried. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was a very clear reason for why that scene was a way to introduce uh, this character, but I think Pedro Pascal is, is as uh, as Oberyn is is doing a great job, and um, I, I'm interested to see how he interacts with characters um, as he does with Tyrion a little bit later. Yeah, he's going to be an interesting character going forward, especially that uh, considering his backstory with his sister Elia, which the show hasn't gotten into too much in terms of uh, the history with uh, pre Robert's Rebellion. And with Rhaegar Targaryen, um, they, show, they talked about Rhaegar, but Elia is an area that uh, the show hasn't explored up to this point, and this is as good a place to talk, <laughs> for the show to bring it in as any, considering that now Oberyn is in King's Landing, and he is pissed, and you know, he, you can tell he's, he's not going to leave King's Landing without getting <laughs> getting his revenge. Somebody's head on a pike, right? Yeah, yeah sure. it could not come as a, at a worse time for the Lannisters. Um, and speaking of Targaryens, uh, the very next scene we catch up with Daenerys and the dragons who are gigantic now. Right. Right. Yeah. No, they're, uh, they're imposing. Um, I thought it was a little, perhaps a little on the nose, uh, that Jorah's like, you know, they're dragons who can't control them, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. We, like we got that when she it tried to snap at her. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think, I think that scene where he, where the, um, the dragon tries to snap at Daenerys is, or does snap at Daenerys, but doesn't, obviously make contact i uh, was an interesting and scene and and sort of emphasized the physicality of the dragons because before uh their imposingness was often in the not in their size or the fact that they were um they had teeth and claws but that they could breathe fire but of course when it comes to daenerys she's a targaryen and doesn't well she's a targaryen who has this 
power that some Targaryens seem to have where they can't be affected by heat or uh, that sort of thing. So, um, of course, the only threat that a dragon is to Daenerys is through biting and clawing and that sort of thing. So I thought it was a, it was a, an, a good moment, and I thought it was weird that they would undermine it with this very obvious dialogue from Jorah, but... That's a minor point, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I agree. I think that dialogue was too on the nose. Um, but you know, it, it's the, the physical moment of the dragon snapping at her still was still really powerful. Oh no, no, it was good. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, so we should also talking about we should also talk about. There's a new actor playing Dario Naharis. Um, All right. Yes. Uh, I, I think I. <laughs> Obviously, I we haven't seen much enough of him to really make a judgment call as to whether or not he's better or worse than the guy from the previous season. Right. Um, I feel like this guy. I don't know. He's not. He doesn't feel exotic enough. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is just be, just from what I know of the character in the books. Like in the books, he has his beard is blue and he has a tie to his knots, and he, he's he's crazy. He's clear. He's a very exotic character. Right. Uh, whereas this guy really is just kind of he's dressed in pretty normal clothes he's just he's got this basic brown beard is i mean you don't have to change the beard color if you want to. <laughs> yeah no i got you. but he seems very kind of just i don't know bland and not very not as interesting and it's it's not it's not that hard to see why daenerys would be interested in him just because of the kind of um smooth uh flirting that he does with the flowers later on but yeah, what did what did you think of him? Um, I thought he was I thought he was fine. Um, I think it's interesting to use. They did this with the same with uh, the mountain. I think they they changed the actor who played the mountain. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the ways they did that was to sort of cover the mountain's face with a giant helmet and also some facial hair. And I think that part of the reason he had um, uh, this character had no facial hair in the last season and facial hair here was partially to cover up the fact that it's a completely different actor <laughs> uh, who looks in no way similar whatsoever. Um, but I, you know, I think it's interesting that, uh, that, you know, he plays the character much straighter than the, the previous actor. And, and I, I think that there's something to be said for that. I don't know for better or for worse, because I don't know the character, but, um, uh, the previous actor was very, uh, you never were quite sure what his intentions were. And so for me, I think that it's interesting to see this new actor play it in a very different way where, you know, he doesn't have this sort of constant smirk or this constant knowing look that he gives every time he does something. Uh, so he gives the flowers to Daenerys and does that whole smooth moment where he's, you know, convinces her to take his, his little gift. Um, it doesn't feel like there's anything else going on. It's just a simple romance, which to be honest in this show, maybe is something we need. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it may be as well, especially the next, or very next scene. We have Tyrion's, uh, to call them romance troubles might be a little reductive. Yes, perhaps. But, well, we catch up with Sansa and Shay and Sansa is very depressed and you can just see it. Sophie Turner, such a good actress, just the way she carries herself and the way she moves you can see that just the sadness and it's it's crushing especially you know knowing the character from previous seasons and knowing that she's she's a child you know and she's now bearing the weight of um the death of every member of her family to her knowledge so it's and you can definitely you can just it it's so it's just so powerful even that she even when she doesn't speak um and it's interesting to see that reflected back at, at Shay, who is all 
passion and all fire and is so furious with Tyrion. For uh, this relationship and this marriage that Tyrion obviously had no say in, but, be, but not being a royal or having grown up with that. Obviously, she doesn't instinctively have an understanding of the way that marriage works for these royal families. Right, and I, and I guess maybe it's um, part of it is that Tyrion is so... Um, but, you know, we're introduced to him when he's having sex with a bunch of women, right? That's like the first time we meet him mm. in season one. And, and so this change... I guess it's not really much of a change, but we didn't really see his steadfast uh, monogamy. To me, that's interesting. That's a really interesting thing for him where he, you know, you might expect him to be the kind of guy who just has sex with anyone no matter whether or not, you know, he's married. Uh, so, um, but, you know, when he was with Shay, he, he remained faithful. And now that he's with Sansa, uh, I guess ceremonially, but not necessarily um, uh, romantically, uh, you know, he's still holding to his vows, despite the fact that they're all sort of fake. I mean, they're not fake, but they're not, like, based on true passion or anything. So I think it's interesting to see this character who was, like, this horn dog, you know, um, and and drunk and all these things that people sort of gave him, um, discredited him as. And now he's, you know, he's like, no, I'm not doing this, I'm married. And you're like, really? Oh, that's interesting. And so so for me, I, I, I like that. And on, on Sansa, for me, um, I, I think that... Uh, I think the character is reacting totally uh, appropriately for the circumstances. I in no way believe that it's not realistic. However, I am a little bit concerned about the character, uh, about Sansa as a character, just because um, she hasn't done a whole lot in the past two seasons. She sort of got married, and then that was it. And she didn't really do that. It was like it happened to her. Um, and so I and, and and while being com- completely depressed because your entire family has been killed is a totally reasonable reaction. I do wonder how long you can keep that up and still have the audience interested. Um, like I wasn't interested so much in Sansa in this episode. Uh, I was, except for the the one scene with the with the beads with the necklace that was interesting. But but ultimately I think it's the characters around her that are more interesting because she's so cold and 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 because she's for again for reasons like there's good reason for it but it's a little concerning because you know she doesn't get to emote and and react the way perhaps she did earlier on in the in the first the first seasons yeah sense is a very passive character uh, um and i think you, you know it's it's not necessary it's i'm not just saying it's she's necessary you know it's necessary that she's a passive character but um, I think Sansa works just because of her personality and just her character. It makes sense that she would be so passive, that she feels so trapped. Uh, and abandoned, yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. She has nowhere to go. She, everyone in her family is dead, as far as she knows. So it's, and it should be interesting as the season goes forward to see now that she seems to have allies in King's Landing for the first time. Her, she seems to have a relationship with the Tyrells and uh, Sir Dantos, who returns from season two. Um, from that one scene in season two, he's back now. Right. Um, so it's it should be interesting to see the direction she goes now that she has um, places to go. Right, right. And, and also they have that, there's that awesome scene with Jamie and, and Brienne where there's this, this implication that Jamie and Brienne will both be looking out for Sansa um, and for... Uh, any other Starks who may or may not appear from here on out. So I think I think it's interesting. But again, I was more interested in those conversations and with Tyrion's sort of weird relationship with her than I was necessarily in her. But 
that, that can work. It can work as long as I don't put too much focus on on it. I I'm fine with it. It's just I'm I'm worried about the level of intrigue you can get out of somebody who's like chronically depressed. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Um, next up, we have Jamie. He's got a golden hand now. Oh right. Um, and now he and he's this is reu uh, he's reuniting with Cersei. Uh, we saw briefly like him just. Uh, appearing to her now that he's back in King's Landing, but as far as the show goes, this is their first kind of scene of reconciliation. And it's not great. It's, I mean, it's another example of the Lannisters being so... Uh, they're at each other's throats to an extent. Um, and Cersei... Her, her reaction to Jaime when she says, you took too long, it's obviously irrational and it's um, cruel. And that's who Cersei is, that's Cersei in a nutshell. Um, but you can't, and you can't help but feel bad for Jamie, who, he, there's no ambiguity to that scene whatsoever as to who is in the right. And it seems, but of course it's so odd that this is, you know, these two lovers are brother and sister. And yet that no longer matters to the show. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that their relationship uh, their sexual relationship now like the, the fact that the that it's incest is almost the show doesn't treat it as relevant anymore it's just who, who they are and the feelings that they have um and it's it's hard to watch jamie who did go through how and back to get back to king's landing be so rejected by cersei it uh, is but you know I, I i i really like cersei as a character maybe it's because i like lena Headey a lot yeah. uh, but but i think that her um Perhaps it wasn't the same as what Jamie went through, but she she makes a point, you know. She 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 he wasn't there, and of course it wasn't his intention to get captured to, to do it, this that and the other thing. And they're all operating at the whim of their father anyway. You know, she's only there because of her, um, because of her, because her dad decided that it would be a convenient marriage um, to marry uh, Robert. But so uh, I think that, but I do think she has something of an argument where you know he wasn't there to defend her, he wasn't there to make take a stand or argue or do anything when uh, Joffrey did anything wrong or when her daughter was um, was uh, sent to Doran or any of those things. So I think it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting moment where they both have something of an argument and yet it you're, as you as you said I, I do agree with this that um, it doesn't feel like a scene between a brother and a sister who are also in a relationship which is what was so startling about the first episode of the first season. Um, in this case they just seem like uh, this couple that you've waited to see get back together for a while, and now they're they're not, which is just weird. It's like a weird thing to make okay in the show, but I guess this is Game of Thrones, so yeah. Great, <laughs> uh, right, yeah. Uh, next up, we have we're reuniting with uh, Egret and Tormund, Tormund uh, who are south of the Wall and kind of waiting for Mance Raider's signal to uh, to attack Castle Black. Uh, and this is the scene where we get introduced to the Fens, and um, I'm curious. Okay, well, what was your re- I'll say, what was your reaction to the Fens? So for me, uh, I, I felt like the Fens, and really, this is a problem with Game of Thrones. I have in general, uh, where I feel like a lot of shows take the first half of a, the first season or the first season altogether to introduce the world, to build the world, to introduce characters so that they can then run with them for the subsequent seasons. And it doesn't mean that there's no new characters introduced, but it it never, 
Game of Thrones feels to me like it never got out of those stages where it's constantly introducing not just new characters, but new countries, new nationalities, new traditions, new customs, new magic, new things all the time with very little context. Um, where you can do that in the beginning because, you know, we're willing to listen to your backstory and figure out who you are and get to know you as a character. Um, but, you know, when, when we were getting season two and we were getting introduced to the pirates and Melisandre and, and Stannis and all these characters, and then, you know, in season three we were introduced to a bunch of new characters, um, you know, in The Unsullied and, and uh, Dario Naharis and all these all these characters, I, I as, a, as a viewer, it becomes difficult to sort of... Um, empathize or, or care about new um groups that get introduced so with fans it just was it was for me it was par for the course and it was a moment that i was um a little upset with having said that i i really liked um uh, Oberyn's introduction uh, introduction earlier and i think that that's that's a good case of a character who fit with something we've heard about before the uh with dorn and, and the dornish and also um, which has been mentioned consistently throughout this, this series, um, even if we haven't seen it. Uh, and also, he sort of replaces characters that we might have lost uh, along the way, and it's always fine to introduce a new character when we've lost a major character like Rob um, or Catelyn. Uh, but here, this is just like a whole group of people, and you know, I just I don't care. Yeah, well, okay. I, I mean, I, I agree <laughs> with you. It's funny. I My problem with the fans as a book reader is much different um and obviously you have no way of knowing this but the fans in the book the whole point of them in to my in my opinion was that they're supposed to be more civilized than the wildlings that's their whole thing they make their own armor and weapons they have a uh, leadership hierarchy that's pretty strict um they're much more organized and you know as a society so when they come in in the show and they're these all these big brutes and they're cannibals. That was baffling to me because it seems like, you know, it's completely antithetical to what we know about the Fens from the book. And it's such a weird choice because it doesn't seem to affect unless they take some wild liberties with the way that that storyline goes. It, there's really no reason to change, you know, the Fens so drastically. The Fens aren't even really that important to the story. So it's it's unless they're combining them, there's some stuff that the show hasn't gotten to yet. So it's possible they're combining the fins with that, but it's just it, it just bugs me that you know I, I'm okay with the show making changes from the books as and it has, but this is just such a such a bizarre one to me. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's not only is it weird um, in that res- in that regard. I I just wasn't you know. There- there's no way to really surprise us anymore with in this show. I feel like in a lot of ways, except for plot points, but introducing things or concepts. You know, you already had incest and this. Um, I forget the guy's name, but the one who has all the daughters he has sex with and oh, Craster, uh, yeah, yeah, Craster and 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 the the crows are already have already said that they eat people um, if they need to when they're out in the in and they're stuck beyond the wall because you know food is food, so. It's not remarkable to see a foot on a spit, unfortunately, because you've already played that card, uh, as they say. So I wasn't, um, I wasn't like freaked out by them. I don't, you know, I'm like, ooh, you're a cannibal. Like it doesn't make you a better fighter. It doesn't do anything. It's just vaguely gross, you know. But I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, you knew it wasn't as effective soon as to me. You, yeah, you knew as soon as that package got pulled out well, that it was going to be a, a human body part in yeah. there. Like there was no 
sense to that whatsoever and they tried to play it as a reveal but like obviously and the only reason it wouldn't have wasn't for me is because i was like wait well like that's not what they are what are, what's going on right exactly <laughs> yeah but from not from that perspective you're like it's obvious way and maybe it's <laughs> um i wasn't even maybe it's because i've been watching hannibal but which literally had a scene with a wrapped up human leg a couple weeks ago that was almost identical but yeah, it's just not it's not surprising at all in the show. It seems like if that if that's why they changed the Fens is to have that shock moment where they're so brutal and it's the opposite of what they are in the books and that they are a threat to the wildlings that we know, then I guess that makes sense, but it really just it, it's not shocking at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it is shocking it, in in relation to the wildlings we know they're as far as we've seen they're not cannibals, so this is technically uh, worse than the wildlings, and so for them, in relation to them, they, you know, you can believe that they would see this and be like, "Whoa, that's gross and terrifying." But like, like I said, we've already seen, um, we've seen the crows actually uh, talk about this very subject as if it's a totally normal thing to do. So it's like, meh, I don't know. It just wasn't all that exciting to me as a, as a viewer. But again, it was a minor point. You know, it was a minor introduction that didn't seem to have a lot of um a lot of importance and then i was much more interested in in seeing john snow sort of have to answer for his crimes at the wall yeah it's the very next thing he goes on trial kind of right um which is um it's fun because we get the return of uh, jano slint who we haven't seen in a little while it's a lot of returning characters from season two <laughs> right uh, in this episode we talked about uh sir dantos too then we get jano slint and who's kind of very um, adamant. He he just hates John. He's one of those. It's one of those things where it's just. Um, he just he just hates him, and he just wants to see him go down. And there's no real personal part thing. There's nothing personal about it. It's just. Um, it's it's just kind of a a power move right. just to sh- just to show that he has so much power on this council. He's like, yeah, he broke his vows. Screw him. We gotta we gotta hang him right now. And I thought it was really funny. That um, we we get um, Mister uh, Emmon, right? Uh, who talks about how oh, well, if we hung every uh, ranger who went and slept with some girl, then the, he says the wall would be manned by headless men. Right? It's funny because we don't really. That's not a thing. No one said that at the wall so far. You know, the vows are something that have been taken very seriously up to this point by all the characters that we see. But now this is the first example where someone says, oh, you know, people break the vows all the time. Who cares? And I think it speaks to the fact that the wall is so desperate for rangers at this point, which is something that they have gotten into, that it doesn't like it does, they don't even care. They're not going to hang you just for going off uh, to, and spending the night at a brothel because they would rather have you alive and fighting against wildlings. Although so, at the same time, I also I, I like the whole scene. I'm not I'm not trying to disparage it, but I also I. That was a little silly that they would focus on something like that. Um, I know it's breaking the vow, but like I feel like killing um, Half Hand was a kind of a much bigger deal, and would have, you know, that's like focusing on uh, um, someone cheating on someone else in a murder trial. You're like, okay, that's <laughs> that's like not the point here. The point is he murdered someone, um, yeah. and whether or not that was asked for or whatever the situation was, which we of course we know as viewers. Um, but I actually, I like this scene a lot. It made me, it gave some closure to what was going on with John last season because, you know, you were never clear on what he was going to, I actually liked his arc uh, last season where he, we weren't sure where he was going. Is he really a wildling now? Is that his thing? Or is he going to go back to the wall or, or what? Um, and this was sort of, and again, we're not entirely sure for sure like what his, his going on in his 
and his head and and what he likes and what he, you know who who he's really you know allied with but he does reveal the entire plan um to uh to his betters and i think uh it was a good moment where he basically just tells the entire truth uh to to um to that little committee uh and and i and i liked Eamon's moments too i mean they they were great and and he's he's always been an interesting character i thought the reveal that he was a targaryen in the uh i think the first season yeah uh was a great a fantastic moment uh and i've always liked his character so i, I hope we get to see more of him uh, yeah, it, it definitely now that we're back at the wall with John, I think um, hopefully, yeah, we will get to see more of him and uh, his relationship. Uh, his relationship with Sam should get interesting, right? Exactly. Hope, um, yeah, but um, yeah. And by the way, um, whoever's writing the episode synopses for the for HBO yes. is a cheeky <laughs> person, right? So yeah, um, definitely, and especially if you've read the books and you read those descriptions, you know kind of what's a pun and what isn't. Right. It's really funny, and to and especially you you can go and look back in a dark um, humor sort yeah. of way. Yes. So yeah, so then well, let's jump right into the final scene because this is the last thing we have. Uh, Arya and the Hound. We meet up with them. We have this scene at the inn. Um, why don't you take it away? Uh, well, so. So this scene, this scene is great. They're in the forest and they uh, encounter, um, I guess, some. This is another. They do run into a slight uh, moment of, you know, oh, who's that guy again? Uh, moment, but you know, they make it very clear and obvious that the guy that they're about to encounter and the people that they're about to encounter were people that Arya encountered before, and they took needle from her. Um, they were the people that that took her to prison at whatever yeah. the place was, um, and so. I think it's a not deja vu. It's like unfamiliarity. You're not really sure who these people are, um, but they make it very clear. Like that's the guy who took needle. Um, I need to go and get it back uh, for whatever reason. And then they go into the inn, and there's this uh, great scene with with chickens, and and uh, and um, the hound basically uh, kills a bunch of people, and uh, Arya ends up helping out and getting needle back, and has a great moment with the uh, guy who took her. Uh, sword and also who killed her friend um and the dialogue in the scene's great too uh what i what i most liked about it though ultimately was again it's in its relation to previous encounters with the hound and Arya, where i honestly wasn't all that interested in what was going on with them you know i i the hound wasn't nearly as funny as he was here he's not you know i like the buddy cop sort of dynamic. I liked it with Tyrion and Bronn. I like it with Arya and the Hound. Their relationship n- now seems very interesting. Um, I was less enamored with them in previous seasons, so for me it was a bigger, it was an important scene because it was so radically different in that in that regard. It had that yes. air of, of dark humor, I guess is the... Is the thing. Absolutely, and that's something we got a little bit of in their final scene in season three. Um, which hopefully we'll get a lot more of in this in season four. Right. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a good scene. It's um, especially since we maybe it's good time to mention Game of Thrones. Just today, as we're recording, was renewed for seasons five and season six. Oh, excellent! So definitely to the surprise of absolutely nobody. Ex- exactly. It was the surprising thing was that they didn't do season seven as well. Um, so yeah, right, exactly. I would expect that. Um, since books four and five take place concurrently, like we talked about in the last podcast, that these they renewed it for five and six, knowing that uh, and HBO did, knowing that 
it was going to take five and six to get through both of those books and that the plan in that the showrunners had in place was specifically predicated on making sure that happens. And of course they're confident enough in the show that it doesn't matter. Um, but it's definitely like George R. R. Martin, he, he must be really sweating right now because even presuming that the, his next book, The Winds of Winter comes out in 2015 then he will have, you know, until 2017 would to before 2000 spring 2017 to finish, uh, or whatever to go down the. He's running out of time, is my point. <laughs> very quickly running out of time. Um, so it's yes, no, and, and we'll see again how it um, how it pans out. Uh, with that, you know, when, as we approach the end of that, um, at the, the end of the series, and, and the fact that the books aren't done, but I'm sure they've got a point. There's millions and millions of dollars put into the show at this point, so I, I'm 100% certain that they've got a game plan for what to do should um, George R. R. Martin pass away suddenly, should the for some reason he can't finish the books, for some reason he doesn't finish the books in time, he's just moving too slowly. I am 100% sure that they have got. Oh something that they're going to do, whether or not it's a prequel series or if they're just going to continue because they know how the story goes. Um, but they do have their own writers and their own things, and they do have the outline, I'm assuming, of what's going to happen next from uh, from George R. R. Martin. And if it ends up veering like in sort of a like a parallel storyline because of for that reason, I don't think people will mind. So uh, I'm glad you were able to um, join me for the podcast, and uh, I look forward to talking about... Um, Next week, talking about next week's episode, mm -hmm. uh, when it airs, do you know what the, the title of next week's it's, episode it's is? It's called The Lion and the Rose, um, which is a callback to a season one episode called The Wolf and the Lion. Yep, yeah, which is one of the best episodes, in my opinion. It's, it's when, if we're talking about the, the launch of the, the climax, uh, I feel like that was the episode in season one, so I'm excited for, yeah. for that. And now it's, this is episode two of season four. Right, we're yes. that moment. Um, yeah, and of course, the rose, of course, refers to Marjorie Terrell and the lion being uh, Joffrey, because I think in the preview, it uh, I, next week will be their their wedding. Okay, so, excellent. And yeah. and and as we saw in in the the wolf and the lion, um, there was a betrayal and big things happened there. So I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But I'm no, no, no. Absolutely, my lips are sealed. But, All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Bye. -bye.